you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. And more importantly, I serve on the team of elders that lead and govern the church. Today, we're going to have a brief sermon series ending. So our two-week series on prayer, we're ending, ending today, and we get to hear from the prayer master himself, King Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to go to Luke chapter 11, read four, the first four verses of the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. So often, Lord, we will ask you things like what to do in a various situation in life, in a random situation in life. Lord, what do I do? And you'll often tell us more who you are and then what we do and how we pray. And that's what we're asking today, Lord. Reveal to us a deeper level of who you are that dictates a, a new way of praying a new, new spectrum of things that we pray for on the earth. May your kingdom come in our praying, in our considering what prayer is. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Today I'm going to teach through the four verses. Really, I'm going to teach through the, the second, third, and fourth verse, just what Jesus tells us to pray how it reinforces how we pray and what we're supposed to pray for. And then we're actually going to pray. But before I get to that, I want to share a few things about the first few verses that lead into that. A certain unnamed disciple goes to Jesus, sees him praying, sees that there's something there. There's a connection there that he's getting that I'm not getting. And so he asks Jesus, hey, let let me know the trick to this, all right? Show me the trick. Give me the how-to for how you're praying. And so often, Jesus will often just kind of go with us, kind of where we're going, in order to go through that to get to a deeper place. He'll entertain level A to get to the baseline level of what he's really trying to lead us into. Remember the woman at the well? She wanted to have this religious argument with him about propriety and, and, and what, where things should be, God should be worshipped and things that didn't quite matter, but Jesus entertained that conversation so that he could turn it in a prophetic and powerful way, and she ended up getting zapped with the power of God and led her whole city to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going with us with this question that's not quite the right question. It's not just a how-to in life. There's something deeper than that, but he'll go through that to get to something totally mind-blowing. So he says, When you pray, say, so those four words are confounding. When, 
So he's assuming that there's a sanctified habit of prayer that's undergirding our living when you pray. There's a habit of prayer that he is assuming that we're living with. And he says, when you pray, the word pray here is actually more like a, means like prayer offering, almost like if it's some religious ritual that we're bringing to Jesus, our prayer. Somehow he's not against that. And then he says this, when you pray, say. And this is where in our modern, allegedly like progressed and evolved society, we'd stop Jesus and we'd be like, all right, Jesus, that's too far. You're asking us to repeat stuff here, but come on, Jesus, be authentic, right? We'd correct and be like, no, that's way too routine. That's too regimented. You need to be, be just sincere in your prayer, Jesus. But evidently, Jesus doesn't think that sincere is synonymous with spontaneous. He tells us to pray, and he even gives us this formulaic way of praying that's supposed to reinforce something deeper about who he is that can transform us in our praying. We are the generation that has bought the lie that thinks that keeping it real is the highest good. As if sincere was uh, not the same as spontaneous. And sincere, or sincere is spontaneous, and there's nothing higher than that good. But what if, what if keeping it real for us is just really corrupt, really tainted, for real wrong? What if it's just really stupid? Might be sincerely stupid, but I know this about me. Often for me, keeping it real is just silly and stupid. But I have a greater hope than the best that I can really offer. That in my greatest moments, in my silliest moments, that I have something better than just my best, most sincere effort. Jesus leads me, guides me, drives me deeper into himself. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, okay, I'll go with you here. When you pray, say this. And then what he says in his prayer the habits that he's leading us to form and how he fulfills so much of what this very simple prayer that he's showing us is world-changing. It's nothing less than that. So we're going to get to the rich simplicity of his prayer that he's teaching. In these few verses, just the words of Jesus' prayer show us five key prayer points that should really drive how we pray. Number one, it's less of a how and more of a to whom. It's intimacy. Two, supremacy, then provision, and pardon, and protection. Now, before I go into these things, I just want to underline one other thing that you might notice. If you've read your Bible a few times, you might notice that the Lord's Prayer is also in the book of Matthew. And you might notice that Matthew has like a few more words in Jesus' prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Luke is kind of shortened. Uh, in the King James, there's, there's in, in a few of the older translations, it's, it's, there's some words that are added that shouldn't be there. We, we know, you know that it, what, what was really there. And King James, in this case, got it wrong. But either case, Luke's prayer is shorter than Matthew's. Why? Is, there, is this a so-called discrepancy in the Bible? I have a really crazy simple answer. I'm going to speak to you all because we... We can understand this, no matter what age you are in here. Why is Jesus' prayer 
shorter in Luke than it is in Matthew. Here's my, here's my thought. That in Jesus' 33 years of living on earth, he prayed more than once. Boom. He prayed more than once. So this prayer in Luke is the same basic prayer, same basic formula, same basic heart. It's just in a shorter sense. And he's, he's basically communicating the same basic things as Matthew. Uh, again, what is that? What's the heart he's sharing? Number one, intimacy. That first word he teaches us to pray shocked the world. I'm not overstating that. He teaches us to pray, Father. He's Father. God is Father. He's not like a genie. Now, of course we think, of course God's not like a genie, but we often pray and doubt like this. As if God is just not for us, not nurturing us, not guiding us. And we, it's our job as prayers to come up with like the secret code of praying. Otherwise, we'll be left out of his will. He's not like that. He is Father. He wants us to pray boldly, and he'll kind of redirect us and mold us and correct us as we go because he's Father. He wants us to come to him like children. He wants us to pray, Father. He's not distant. He could have told us to come to him when you pray, say, good shepherd, master, teacher, ruler. But, but he chose Father. Now, he's all those other things and more, but he told us to come to him with this word that's just a, a level of kind of scandalous proximity. The, the contemporaries of his time would have thought, okay, this is kind of over the line, Jesus. It's okay to speak of God, Yahweh, as Father in a general sense, but Father, like personal Father, Maybe he's the father of our nation, but this is very presumptuous of you to pray to him like father. And he just did it anyway. And he told us, sinners, to pray to God, the God of heaven, as father. He cares for you. He made you. He wants you to go directly to him. If you want to slide into his direct messages or whatever and just give a direct line out to him if, if you're Generation X, if you want to go directly to him, then pray to him in the way that he's asking you to pray to him. He says, Father, when you pray, say, Father. Pray with intimacy. Now, when we pray to him as he is, it will dictate the way that we pray. Sometimes it's not about what we pray for. It's when we're redirected in our mind, remembering who we're praying to, it changes the game. He says, Father, there's a level of intimacy. And after this kind of holy, transforming intimacy, before there's any of what we think are our needs, we can align it with our greatest need that we often don't think about, and that is supremacy. So first it's intimacy, and then it's supremacy. He says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is our greatest need in our life. Especially when we're not inclined to consider this as the greatest need in our life. And that's why he says, when you pray, say this, say this, reinforce this. Speak this to all of your worries and fears and 
and reorient yourself around this highest need. Hallowed be your name. This is what we are to ask him for first and foremost. Your kingdom come. Our greatest need is for his name to be hallowed, which is another word for sanctified, glorified in our lives. Hallowed be your name. Glorified be your name in my life. Augustine, or Augustine, was one of Christianity's OGs, his, one of the original church fathers of Christianity. He was a 4th century African playboy turned Christian. His story is actually amazing, the kind of grace he received. He became one of the church fathers and one of the foremost theologians. And a little side note about Augustine, sometimes when we, when we kind of, even implicitly feed ourselves this lie that somehow humanity has progressed and evolved and we're smarter than older people. I'm reminded of reading Augustine. And I read just a little bit, and I'm like, oh, this dude's way smarter than me. Because apparently as when you reorder your life with the things that are most supreme, it kind of dictates a higher level of intelligence. When, you're, when your priorities are right, And when God is first in your life, your intelligence and thinking can be reordered. And Augustine's a great example of this. He said this in his writing, Confessions. He said, in essence, true prayer is reordering your loves. Reordering your loves. Now, here was his argument. All people, in essence, seek what we would call happiness. And so we attach our things, ourselves to things that we think are going to make us happy. You know, we, we express our love in different ways. And in English, we actually use the word love, which is weird. We'll say things like, I love tacos or chocolate or fall weather. Hallelujah. But our main problem is that because sin distorts and confuses our choices and our loves, Everything else is distorted. In other words, we misidentify what we think is going to make us happy. And we can all kind of look back and judge ourselves, except for maybe y'all. Y'all can judge your future. Remember in middle school what we thought was going to make us happy? Imagine if you lived your life today based on that whole spectrum of need and what you thought need was. And we can look back on that and be like, that's so silly. Don't do that. But when God looks at us, we think that we're such mature adults. And we think our needs are this, this, and that. We have a way worse reordering, misordering of our loves and what we think makes us happy. And so a little perspective on middle school can reorient kind of correcting ourselves. God knows what we need the most. You could own your own business and love making money, but exploit your employees. And of course, in modern age, we, we use more hip words that not, not exploit, We use like more economic words that sound better, like fiscally responsible and stuff. But the problem is is that we love something other than God more. Or you could love your career and pay it more mind than your health and your relationships and your relationship with God and your children and your family. You see, we either love what we ought not to love or we don't love what we ought to love. It's a big problem of confusion of priorities, a misordering of our loves, as Augustine would say. And at the center of this misery and this confusion and misidentified happiness is simply this. We do not love God most of all. 
And here's the truth that Augustine drove home. God made you first and foremost for himself. And your, your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. That's probably his most famous quote. This is why Jesus says, when you pray, what is most crucial in what you pray in your heart and what's on your lips is God, hallowed be thy name. It's another way of saying, God, may you be loved in me more than everything else. The only way, for instance, to know that he's at the highest point of your life is to know that you're loving him more than anything else. That's the only way that everything else will be as it should be. I'll give you an example of this. If a young man, or when a young man, comes to me and asks me if he can get close to my daughter and love my daughter, the only necessary identifier of whether or not I'm going to be inclined to be allowing this is if I know that he loves Jesus way more than he loves anything else, including her or her. That's the only thing that qualifies our love, that uncorrupts by God's blood, Jesus' blood, our lesser loves. Hallowed be thy name. We love Jesus most. And Jesus knew this. He mercifully kind of worked this into the whole routine right up at the top. Kind of the hierarchy of human needs, if you will. And it's the hierarchy of our prayers that he and his name must be before anything. And I love how it comes before asking for provision. Because he knows that if we teach ourselves that his name and his kingdom come first, and we pray your kingdom come before we ask, give us today our daily bread. He knows that we tend as human beings. If his kingdom doesn't come first, then our kingdom will become our bread. The things that we think we need, our provisional needs, will become the center of our life unless we reinforce by faith otherwise. Ancient Greece, Greeks thought that the sun, uh, that the earth rotated. No, they thought that the sun rotated around the earth. I'm getting all backwards here. But we know that it's otherwise. And the same is true for Jesus. He doesn't rotate around your life. God's son should be the bright and burning center of your life. And then and only then will the other aspects of your life find right orbit and balance and equilibrium. I mean, how extremist should you be about Jesus in your life? Depends on the question, how glorious is Jesus? Is he really God? Pray, hallowed be thy name. God, pray, God, help me to stop hallowing things that are not hallow-worthy. My worries, my fears, my, my career, my hobbies, my likes, my retweets, or politics, or relationships. Pray your kingdom come. And think about how the effect that praying, God, your kingdom come, has on how we see ourselves in our workplace or in our neighborhood. The effect that God's kingdom first has on our discipleship, on our evangelism. You know, one of the reasons why, one of the foremost reasons I think that 
regardless of our personalities, why we tend to be nervous about sharing the love of Jesus with our friends and coworkers and neighbors. One of the reasons often is it's a simple battle of kingdoms. My kingdom, my reputation, my desire to not be seen as a religious zealot, but to be a little bit more cool, chill, respectable, that comes before what this person uh, connects to God or not, his kingdom through me and in me. What has being cool and respectable ever gotten to anyone? Now, you might say, Pastor Peter, you just don't know how to relate. You're too goofy to know what being cool and chill would ever be. But has anyone on their deathbed ever said, man, I'm about to die, but here's one thing I'm really happy about. I'm really happy that my, my neighbors don't see me as an overly, overly religious, annoying, zealot type. No. If 10 of my friends and neighbors think I'm just wacky crazy, but God leads one of them to himself through my preaching and sanctified annoyingness because I'm saying, God, your kingdom, may it come before my respectability, then so be it. I went to high school and I was annoyed into faith by a campus ministry where a guy named Josh kept inviting me to this campus student-led thing. And quite honestly, I did not go because I wanted to go. I went because I wanted them to stop inviting me. And I went and I saw, shoot, they're opening the Bible and they're reading and I'm starting to see, now I know through the Holy Spirit, that my problem with sin is way worse than I thought. But Jesus' power is way greater than I could have ever imagined. And I became a Christian. And I can thank Jesus for using Josh, who cared more about his kingdom than than Josh's own coolness or respectability or my comfort, for that matter. Can we love our friends more than their comfort, more than our own kingdom or respectability? God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, help us to pray it with our words, with our risks, with our invitations to our friends, to Campus Sunday, to our invitation to coffee, to our growth groups. Lord, let us be sanctified in our aggression to show your love. Your kingdom come. So he says, pray this way. There's intimacy and there's his supremacy. And then there's provision. He teaches us to pray. He says, give us each day our daily bread, after teaching us to pray about supremacy. Daily bread is a simple metaphor for all the things that we need. Jesus knows what we want, and he knows what we need, and he knows how to sort out the difference between the two, and he's just telling us to ask him. Ask Jesus what you want. It's not that complicated. See, the problem is we're complicated because of the fuzziness of our sin. But he's not complicated. Any parent in here knows how relentless kids can be with asking for stuff. My wife and I have had multiple moments where we've had to tell these kids, like, all right, we're really close to making a rule. Don't ask anymore. (laughs) But we don't. I don't think that would reflect the heart of God. We actually want to condition our kids to ask, 
relentlessly. Now, we can teach them gratitude and prudence, but we want to teach them to ask, audaciously ask. Jesus right here is teaching us to ask him for what we need. Have you ever prayed with someone that just can't quite ask God honestly what they need? And it's like a a spirit of trepidation that kind of comes across as like religious reverence and prevents them from just saying what they want. I mean, that's that's been you and me. But it sounds like, God, if it's your will, and they're, they won't ask because they're, I guess they're afraid of the prosperity gospel or something like that. Or they won't just say, God, I want this. Listen, God has not put the burden on us to sort out in our praying what his will is. He's God and he's already said he can sort out what his will is because he's God. He's just asking us to pray. He's saying, ask me. Ask. What Jesus teaches here in Luke 11 is all over the Bible. Isaiah 62. You who call on God, give God no rest until he restores Jerusalem. That is, until he does what he said he would do. He's going to do it. He just likes to do it in response to our asking. Why? Because he's Father. He wants us to ask and for us to see, to, to be less likely to take for granted the provision as if it's because of our hard work or something else. No, it's because we asked, and he's a good father. He wants us to ask, and he wants us to receive. Probably my favorite part in the Bible where he talks about asking and receiving is like four verses after our main verse. It's Luke 11. He goes on to expound on asking, and he traces it back to, look, how you see God will determine how you ask him. In other words, our provision asking comes from our intimacy trust. Luke 11, verses 9 through 12. So I say to you, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, whoa, that's a big word. Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Will he not, you will not give him a, a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? We insult God when we don't ask. When we don't ask big. As if he's not a big God. And as if he doesn't care as a father. His word says he's, he's able to do exceedingly, exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can think or imagine for it's according to his power who works in us. Ephesians 2 or 3 or somewhere. He's able to sort out what our need for provision is and how that relates to our need for his supremacy in his life. He's good like that. He just wants us to ask and then trust like good children that he helps us to be. Ask your father intimately. Ask for supremacy. Ask for provision. And ask for pardon. The next thing he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Isn't it interesting that in this line of reasoning, sin and debt are like the same thing. You could kind of... uh, Jesus kind of uses them interchangeably because sin is a debt. The wages of sin, Romans 6 says, is 
death. We are indebted to God to die a death for the sin we've committed. And God is just. And he is owing us that. If a serial abuser stood before a judge and the victims got their day in court to face the abuser, and if the judge were to slam her gavel and say, forgiven, debt canceled, would we call that judge a righteous and loving and compassionate judge? No, it it would be the opposite of those things. Because compassion and love has everything to do with justice. God doesn't just snap his fingers or wave some sort of magic wand. That's not how forgiveness works. The way that God enacts justice and forgiveness at the same time shows who he is. Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers to the children in the third and fourth generation. How is it that he can forgive but not clear the guilty? Well, we're going to get into that. That's, 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 what, that's what Jesus does. It's the price he prays. But know this, that God, in his forgiveness, he is not unjust. I read a news article a few weeks ago that Jeffrey Epstein allegedly evaded justice when he was found deceased in his prison cell. Let me tell you, he did not evade justice. He is paying his debt right now. And everyone must face our debt. If we think comparing ourselves to really wicked men like that's going to help us, it won't. God compares us to how we were designed and what we were made for in his law and his word. And we have a debt to pay off. And God is just, and he will see that it's paid. And, And here's the other thing about the, the sin and debt issue. Think about the other side of it. That's why Jesus tells us to pray and to release the debt. He says that when we pray, pray, forgive us our sins, and forgive everyone who is indebted to us, sinned against us. When we don't fully forgive others for their sin, not saying that we're saying what they did to me was okay. But when we don't forgive, we're forcing ourselves to be sort of the de facto God over their life, the sin creditors, keeping them in our debt, clinging to a power over them that's not from God. That's why Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Because we either receive forgiveness and all that it entails to us and from us, or we don't receive forgiveness. That's why he teaches us to pray this over and over. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And finally, protection. Lead us not into temptation. Now, it's not saying here as if God would lead us into temptation. This is saying, let us not be led to temptation. In in other words, protect us from temptation. Temptation. This is a key doctrine in the Christian faith called the perseverance of the saints. The reason why we are preserved and that we persevere is because God holds us. 
And God is going to hold us and he wants to remind us that it's not our power and it's not by our might. It's by the Spirit, says the Lord. He wants to finish what he starts and he wants us to pray over and over and over again so that our striving is not at the center of our growing. He wants us to remember that we trust him. My, my flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, fighting temptation over the years, the first probably decade of my life, it was a lot more self-talk. Kind of like I, I would fight a, t- a temptation, and in the middle of that, I would almost kind of like pray as if God were distant, and there was this, this shame thing on me. In those moments, God is grieving for me, but he's not ashamed of me. But, but I would, it would be like self-talk, like, oh, Peter, how could you? How could you think like this? In recent years, it's been a little bit more like processing with God. Instead of, Peter, how could you? It's like, oh, God, you see this ugly. Help me here. Help me. And I know you're grieving, but I know that you have power to help me and that your blood is for this. It's a lot more processing out loud. In fact, sometimes... Sometimes my processing out loud, you know, we, we said last week that you don't fight thoughts with thoughts, you fight thoughts with words. Sometimes it gets a little bit like low-key awkward in public if I'm processing temptation with God out loud. But low-key awkward, I high-key don't care. Because there is a war. And if I have to fight out loud and someone hears me saying, I don't need these cheeses, Jesus, or whatever it is, or the... The more serious things, when I fight lust, whether it's cheese or anything else, I'm not fighting a war against awkwardness. I'm fighting against sin and death, which wants to destroy me. And we're fighting with a a righteous God on our side. And we can say, do not let me be led into this temptation. Or that one word prayer that God has this paternal desire to respond to. Help! Wherever you are, God, help! And he hears, and he responds, and he helps. He is a good father. Intimacy, supremacy, provision, pardon, protection. Now, here's a big question, because if you've gotten everything that I've said leading up to now, and let's say you apply these five principles to how you pray, great. But if you do all those things, and you can't answer this next question, then it's all wasted, Here's the question. Just how can we be forgiven? If it's not a magic wand or God snapping his fingers, how is he righteous and just, not clearing the guilty, but offering forgiveness? How can we be forgiven? This is the basic question of the gospel. If you cannot answer this question correctly, maybe not at the level of the words, but at the level of faith, then you cannot be forgiven. You can't go to heaven you don't know the gospel. You're still a child of the devil, not of God, because you still belong to the rebellion. But here's that question. Just how can we be forgiven? And the answer is, in in essence, this, that Jesus forgives our debts not by leading us away from all temptation, but by plunging himself into our temptation. He went ahead of us into all the things that we were tempted by. Everything that you'd be tempted by, in essence, Jesus was tempted by that, and he passed every test that we've failed. 
and he was spotless. And his account was clear when he stood before the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had no debt to pay off of his own. But he was waging war for our debt. And when he went to the cross that next day, it was to pay our debt. His account was clear so that he could pay our debt. Only a spotless sacrifice can lead to the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus went to the cross to cancel our debt. And he rose again from the dead so that we could pray to him in full and complete honesty and vitality and connection. And that these prayers of ours would be sanctified. And that our lives would be living and holy and righteous because of his righteousness. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. We're going to practice these principles.